Acts chapter 11. I'm going to sort of just recount the story of Acts chapter 10 and 11 to you very briefly, very quickly, and then we'll, we'll just dive right in. So Acts chapter 11 is actually a continuation or a recounting of Acts chapter 10, which is pretty interesting. In Acts chapter 10, there's this guy named Peter. He's an apostle of Jesus. He followed Jesus around for a few years. He did some really cool stuff. He did some not so cool stuff. He kind of got beat up a little bit by Jesus. And uh, really, really just a strong guy who wanted to do what God wanted him to do. And one night... Jesus has died, resurrected, gone back to heaven. Peter's been working on building the church, doing the mission that God has sent him to do. And he goes to bed. He has this crazy dream where this sheet is being lowered down from above by the four corners. And on this sheet are all kinds of critters, all kinds of animals. Um, There's animals of prey, animals uh, uh, that are hunters. There's livestock, all kinds of animals. Whatever's eating my tomatoes in my garden may have been on that sheet. And it's lowered down, and a voice from the angel of heaven says to Peter, kill and eat. And this is really, really weird. And Peter goes, "Uh, I don't think so. Thank you. Um, These lips never touched anything unclean, but thank you for your kind remarks. And it happens again and again, and finally Peter wakes up and he's wrestling. What does this mean, this sheet with the unclean? And, and the angel said to him, the things that God has made clean are clean. What does all that mean? And he's wrestling with this, grappling with this, and there's a knock at the door, and there's three dudes, and they say, we're here from Caesarea, and there's a centurion from Caesarea named Cornelius, and he wants to meet with you. Come with us. So Peter says, okay, that's cool. And so he grabs six dudes. They go up to Caesarea, and, and they share the gospel. They share what Jesus has done in their lives with Cornelius. And the whole household comes to know Jesus. And it's this really cool moment where God is doing something new. And when we open up Acts chapter 11, this is sort of the response of the community of the followers of Christ to what's taking place in Acts chapter 10. Peter goes and does this thing, and then the community hears about it and responds. And so this is what we hear. And we see here that God often builds his kingdom by starting a new movement. God often builds his kingdom by starting a new movement. Look again at this passage, Acts chapter 11, verse number one. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. This was something completely new. The church was not prepared for this at this time. Up to this point in history, All the redemptive work that God had done had been focused primarily on the people of Israel as his chosen ones, and and they were the people that that God was moving in and through, and from their perspective, nearly all of God's redemptive work and, and, and humanity had been done through them and for them. They understood God's activity on the earth as to be for them, through them, for their benefit, and God's church was for them and for their benefit. And as far as they knew and as far as they were concerned, Jesus was the Messiah for the Jews. He was the great high priest for the Jews. He was the the high prophet for the Jews. He was the king for the Jews. And and Christianity in their hearts and minds was a Jewish religion. And then suddenly, some within the church, Peter namely, are talking with non-Jewish people and telling them how they can have a part of this Jewish thing, this Jewish redemption, this Jewish kingdom. And the church was not prepared for this. 
They had not yet tasted God's vision for a world revolution, his vision in which his church would do the work of spreading the good news that his kingdom was here, telling people about Jesus, living and loving like Jesus, modeling for others how to love Jesus, and helping others to surrender to him, learning to live and love like him. They had not seen yet that it's in this way that his kingdom would spread throughout the whole world. They didn't understand this. They, they hadn't tasted this vision, this beautiful, powerful vision. The church was not prepared for this new thing of God. But God is always doing new things. He is not a stagnant or a stationary God at all. He doesn't change, but he never ceases to change others. He never ceases to create, to build, to change us. Let me show a few examples from Scripture. First, we see his creativity, his activity, his desire to build, his, his desire for newness in his work in Genesis chapter 1. When the Father, the Son, and the Spirit joined together in creating everything from nothing. There was nothing, and then there was. Just at the sound of his voice, God's creative powers were unleashed, and the universe leapt into existence, singing and shouting praises to their creator just by existing. God is doing new things. And then we see it again, this creative drive, this creative force, this desire to do new things in his nature. In Genesis 12, when he called Abraham, this unknown goat farmer from Ur in Mesopotamia, to leave his home, that is his center of security and provision, and to go into the wilderness where God would be his provision in order to make a new nation from which he would save the world. God is doing new things. And then we see it again in Isaiah 43 when Jerusalem has been sacked and this nation that God has built from Abraham has been taken captive and he's describing his plans for Israel's future when he says, behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you perceive it? God is doing new things. And we see it again in the new covenant described in Hebrews 7, 8, 9, and 10, a covenant or a promise or agreement in which we're given a new high priest. And Jesus is thus the guarantor of a better covenant, a better promise, and we're given a new and better and more complete law written on the hearts and the minds of his people. A new and better and complete sacrificial lamb who died once and for all, for all people who would follow him for all of time. God is doing new things. And then we see in Acts chapter 2, we see and experience the coming of the Holy Spirit who enters into the lives of the followers of Jesus. Before this time, people generally didn't have a direct connection with God, but, but now we do, and he's the, the seal of our redemption. He's our teacher, our guide, our intersector, intercessor, our, our convictor, our healer, our source of power to do the good things he's calling us to do. God is doing new things in his church. We see his desire to create and build and to do new things and his desire to change us in the new life described in 2 Corinthians 5 and Ephesians 4 and 5 where we learn that those who are in Christ are a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. And Ephesians 4 and 5 that talks about humility and gentleness and patience and gifts from the Spirit and, and about putting off the old self and putting on the new self and walking in love as Jesus did, giving ourselves away for his kingdom. God is doing new things. And we see this in his creative nature, in the, in the new heaven and the new earth described in Revelation 21 and 22, where he says, behold, I am making all things new, a place where he will dwell with us and we will be his people, a literal place where just being with him is the reward 
a literal place where we will live and celebrate and work and eat and the, the tree of life grows and Jesus himself is the source of all light and life. God is doing new things. And the list of new things that God has done and is doing and will do can go on and on and on. I think we sometimes get a picture of God that is sort of still, maybe even stagnant. He, we, we see him as having set all this universe into motion and sitting back and watching it unfold. And maybe from time to time tweaking it here and there to make sure things turn out the way he desires. But that's not the God of the Bible. He doesn't create and extract himself. He creates and gets in. Our God is a creative God. This is part of his nature. He creates, he builds. I don't think he has stopped doing new things. I don't think he will stop doing new things. It's a given, and to say that God no longer creates, no longer builds, no longer invests in new things is to go against his very nature as creator. And so here is God in Acts chapter 11 addressing Peter and saying to him, let's do something new together. Let's do something new. This is gonna be amazing. Just wait. And what does Peter do? So, I think that there are specific roles that people generally play when God starts a new movement. And these roles are outlined in Acts chapter 11 really nicely. Uh, the first role we see in Acts chapter 11, verses one through three. <laughs> the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had welcomed God's message also. And when Peter went up to Jerusalem, so get this, so people are hearing about what took place in Acts chapter 10. That, that Peter was sharing the gospel with, with Gentiles, non-Jews. And so when Peter goes to Jerusalem, sort of the center of the church, those who were of the circumcision party argued with him or criticized him, saying, you visited uncircumcised men and you ate with them. And we see here the very first role that people play when God starts a new thing. And the first role is a pioneer trailblazer. Here's Peter this pioneer trailblazer. God shows up, has, gives him this crazy weird dream, and these guys knock on the door and say, come with us. We're gonna go start something new. And Peter hops up and he goes. And he does this new thing. And, and you know, throughout history, throughout Israel's history, God has sort of showed up from time to time and given hints and, and little messages that his Gospel wasn't just going to be for the Jews, but it was gonna be for all people. But here, now, in this time with Peter and Cornelius, he's really gonna press the issue, and it's go time, all in. And so Peter gets the vision from God, this new thing he's up to, and, and Cornelius gets his vision, says, bring Peter here, he's gonna save your life and your family's life. And what does Peter do? So let me tell you a little bit here. So Cornelius is a centurion. A centurion is a Roman soldier who's in charge of 100 troops. And Cornelius is a pretty well-known centurion, and he's part of a pretty well-known regiment called the Italian Regiment. And they live there in Caesarea, and Caesarea is the provincial capital of the occupying force there in Rome. The Roman governor lives there in Caesarea, and it's, it, it's like headquarters, right, of the enemy. Jews see Rome as sort of the enemy, right, because they're occupying their lands. And this is the headquarters, and this is where Cornelius lives. And, and, and he was high-ranking officer in the Roman force, the occupying force. 
the New American Commentary says about Caesarea that unlike Lydda and Joppa, which were mainly inhabited by Jews, Caesarea was a Hellenistic-style city or a Greek-style city with a a dominant population of Gentiles or non-Jews. Originally a small town named Stratos Tower, it was rebuilt on a grand style by Herod the Great, complete with a man-made harbor, a theater, an amphitheater, a hippodrome, and a temple dedicated to Caesar. Other than the temple, it sounds like a great place to live, right? Sounds really nice. There was a substantial Jewish minority there and considerable friction between the Jews and the larger Gentile population. And so if there was one place that one would go to start a a new movement from God, this was not it. This was not it. It is the center of the stronghold of the enemy, both the physical enemy and the spiritual enemy. This is the place where where the the center of Roman culture in the region is. It's, It's the governor lives there. The occupying force inhabits this space. It's, it's not friendly to Jews, Judaism. It's, n- it's not where you would start a revolution. It's not where you would start a new thing of God. And it's also a stronghold of the enemy, this, this place filled with decadence and debauchery and hedonism and idol worship. It's the stronghold of the enemy, Satan. And this is not the place where I would start a new thing from God. And this is where Cornelius lives. And now put yourself in Peter's shoes. You have this wacky dream. You wake up to a knock on the door, and there's three dudes sent from this Roman centurion saying, come with me. Cornelius wants to talk. What do you do? I'm going to hide under the bed. I'm not going. But Peter does go. Peter's a trailblazer. He's the point of the spear. He's a pioneer, and he goes to the center of this decadence and ungodliness. And he tells people about who Jesus is and what he's done and about the gospel of the kingdom of God. He's willing to go where no one had gone before to build the church among the Gentiles. God was up to something new and Peter obeyed without question, without objection, without discrimination. He simply went and told them about his experience with Jesus. And all of Cornelius' family and Cornelius comes to know Christ as their savior. They repent and become followers of Jesus. And the church was planted among the Gentiles. This is the, the first role that people play when God does new things. Faithful obedience to our king as a pioneer trailblazer. We've got some pioneer trailblazers sitting among us today. Some of you will be called to be pioneer trailblazers for the future of the church. The church is facing difficult times, particularly in the West, and God is going to do new things in order to build his kingdom. He will not sit still. You may be called to be a pioneer trailblazer in the work that God wants to do. Are you ready? Are you prepared? There's a second role that people often play when God does new things. Also described in Acts chapter 11, verses one through three. Let me read those verses again. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went to Jerusalem, to the center of the church, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now, before I begin with this point, I just wanna remind you all that you love me and that I love you 
But I want to I tell you that I love God more than I love you. And I love truth more than I love you. And sometimes love requires hard things. So you may hear some hard things coming up. So buckle your safety belts. The second role that people often play when God does something new is the resistors, resistance. The circumcision party was well known, and you see them in other places in the New Testament. Uh, for example, in Titus chapter 1, verse 10, Paul is describing why elders in the church must be strong and hold firm to sound doctrine, and he says, there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They were a powerful, influential faction in the early church, and they believed that they were upholding the standards that God had set forth generations ago. Circumcision was introduced as a practice intended to be a physical, outward sign of the covenant between God and Abraham in Genesis 17. God had promised Abraham that he would make a great nation through him and that all the world would be blessed through him and through his descendants. And he asked him to begin circumcising himself and his descendants as a physical sign of this covenant, this promise. And in Genesis chapter 17, verses 10 and 11, God says, this is my covenant, my promise, my agreement with you, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. This was a strong, strong tradition among the Jews. In fact, it was a law. It was a law, and, and lots of Jews who were coming to Jesus still saw it as a Jewish religion, and they believed, therefore, that anyone who was a Gentile or a non-Jew who wanted to become a Christian had to become a Jew first and therefore enter into all the rites and ceremonies of the Jew, including a circumcision, before they could become believers. And you might imagine that there among the Gentile population, particularly among the men, this might not have been a very popular position to hold. And so it became a very hotly debated issue in the church, and we see them wrestling together with, the, with one another in this issue in Acts chapter 15 when some of the believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees, and some commentators believe that's the same people as the circumcision party, are saying that it's necessary for Gentile believers to be circumcised in order to keep the law of Moses. Now, interestingly, Acts chapter 11 describes the circumcision party as believers, followers of Jesus. And yet these followers of Jesus, these believers, even though they were followers, they were still relying on their religion to keep them holy and to make them pure. They were still relying on religion to make them holy and pure. And so when Peter goes up there to the center of all decadence and eats with these unclean, uncircumcised Gentiles and shares Jesus with them and doesn't require circumcision from them, it really rankles them. They do not like this, and they make it well known. They're not happy about this. He is stepping on their religious toes. And so they oppose Peter and what he's doing. And we do this too, don't we? We do this too. We love Jesus, but we also love our religion a lot, and the traditions, and the sort of the way we've always done things. We love these things. We forget that sometimes that it's Jesus alone who makes us holy. We, we say it in our brains and with our mouths, but with our actions and our attitudes, we don't really believe it sometimes. And so when someone steps on our traditions intentionally or not or steps on our religious toes intentionally or not or does something 
different than the way we've always done it. We get all rankled and fired up and sometimes angry about it because it hurts. Some among us will be called to be pioneer trailblazers. Some among us are called, even now, to be pioneer trailblazers. And it looks different, and some of you will have an adverse reaction to them because they are up to something that feels like it flies in the face of your religion, in the face of your traditions, and you will oppose what they're doing. You'll be in a difficult position because you'll feel like you're safeguarding the faith, safeguarding that which is sacred, safeguarding our traditions, when in reality, like those who opposed Peter, you may well be opposing what God is trying to do. So be cautious. That's all I'm asking. Be cautious. When God does something new, it's usually the religious people who oppose it. Be aware of yourself because your opposition against what God may be trying to do can be very, very powerful. In fact, we see this in the life of Peter, this pioneer, this trailblazer. We see not long after this event, if you look in Galatians 2, that Peter and Barnabas had become so fearful of the opposition from the circumcision party that they eventually stopped eating with the Gentile brothers. They separated themselves from them entirely. And it wasn't until Paul came in and busted up the party and said, this ain't gonna fly, brother, and confronted Peter to his face. It wasn't until that happened that the church was made whole again. The opposition had broken the community. So be cautious, be aware, check yourself. Now sometimes it is necessary and important and good for there to be dissent in the body to be disagreement in the body. If the new thing that someone's trying to start is in opposition to the gospel, then we should oppose. We should not all be yes men. That is even more dangerous. We need people asking difficult questions. I have people in my life asking difficult questions. I hope you have people in your lives asking difficult questions. But what I am suggesting is that if you're finding yourself in opposition to what someone in the church is doing and you're ready to go to battle over it, please be cautious and be certain that you know what you're talking about, that you're right, that it's backed up in the gospel and scriptures before you step into the ring. Too much is at stake and we cannot afford a divided church. And this is really, really important. So key in on me for just a minute. If you sleep for the rest of the morning, I'm fine if you hear this. This is really, really important. Please, please, do not grumble or complain behind the scenes with others within the church about things that you see that you don't like. Go directly to those whom you oppose and have a frank, respectful, private discussion with them over the matter and see if it can be resolved. This is biblical. This is what Jesus told us to do, right? Go directly to them, have a discussion. If it cannot be resolved, then you escalate to the next level. You take it to the deacon's, elders, pastors, and have a discussion. We do not grumble behind the backs of the people in the church whom you disagree with and say that you love. Grumbling and complaining behind the backs of people is cancerous and can kill the work of the church and can bring severe disunity. And hear me, frankly, I'd rather you take it somewhere else. 
if you have a spirit of opposition that is not rooted in love, born from an understanding of the gospel of the kingdom of God, repent and knock it off. I'm gonna say that again, and I want you to hear me well because I mean this. I really mean this. If you have a spirit of opposition in your heart that is not rooted in love, born from an understanding and a living of the gospel of the kingdom of God, repent and knock it off or take it somewhere else. The calling that this church is called to is too important to harbor disunity among its brothers and sisters. We can respectfully disagree over religious matters, but we cannot break unity in the church over it. You still love me? Okay. We're still together, right? All right. When God does new things, there are the trailblazers and pioneers and there are the resistors, but there's a third group of people uh, that I like to point out, and these are the settlers, and they are discussed in Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 22. Read with me. Acts chapter 11, verse 19. Those who had been scattered as a result of the persecution that started because of Stephen made their way as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the message to no one except Jews. So you catch that? So there's people going on missionary journeys, and they're sharing the gospel. This is good stuff. They're sharing it with nobody but Jews. But, and that's okay. That's fine. That's what they're called to do. But, in verse 20, there were some of them from Cyprus and Cyrene who came to Antioch and began to speak to the Hellenists, proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. And the Lord's hand was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. And then the report about them was heard by the church that was at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to travel as far as Antioch. We'll stop right there. So these are the settlers. They heard about what um, Peter had done going to Caesarea and sharing with Cornelius. They heard about the church being planted there, and they went in after they went up to Antioch and they, they joined in the mission of Peter. Peter broke this new ground. And then the movement of God, so the movement of God will always have these pioneer trailblazers and they will, they will go in at, at great sacrifice and taking huge risks and plowing brand new ground and then God will always send in backup. And that's what we see here. And a few things I'd like to note about these settlers, the people that are coming in and then beginning the work of of building the foundations that Peter had laid. Number one, they preached Jesus. This is verse 20 of chapter 11. They preached Jesus. When when we are on the front end of what God is doing, our message, in fact, when we're in the middle of what God is doing, when we're on the back end of what God is doing, our message must always be the gospel. And And it it's got to be as pure as we can make it. It's easy to work in our own dogma and our own religious ideals and our own thoughts, but the gospel that we present must to be pure. We have to make an effort at understanding the depth and the breadth and the purity of the gospel and then proclaim it loudly and clearly and boldly. Now, I'm gonna step on some more toes. You guys ready? I got my, my stomping shoes on. Hook. Me asking you to proclaim the gospel is different than me saying proclaim the four spiritual laws or Romans Road. Those are good tools to have, but they're not the complete gospel, right? Can we agree on that? They're they're a plan of salvation, and they contain a lot of truth, but they're not the complete gospel. 
And they're good tools. I'm not saying don't use those, but we have to be prepared to use the complete gospel. And the complete gospel is, is built on this, this sentence. And, and every word of this sentence is just rich with truth, and, and every word could be a sermon in itself. So listen carefully. The gospel is about establishing and growing the kingdom of God, and it is King Jesus Death, burial, and resurrection that makes this gospel possible through our belief, our repentance, and our following of him. You got, let me say that again. The gospel is about, and this isn't just me, this is me talking, this is Jesus talking in Mark chapter one, Mark chapter eight. Look it up, read it. The gospel is about establishing and growing the kingdom of God, and it is King Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection that makes the gospel possible through our belief, repentance, and following of him. And he will one day come again and establish his kingdom forever and ever, where he will reign as king. This is huge. This is a very big and robust gospel. Um, I have a friend who says the, the, disciple you, the gospel you preach determines the disciple you produce. And if you have a gospel that's anemic and weak, the disciples you're producing will be anemic and weak. And they won't stand against opposition that we are facing today. And we see it everywhere. There's no question there's a mass exodus from the church nationwide. Because we have been preaching a weak anemic gospel this gospel is robust and rich and full and requires something of you and i and it builds disciples who are robust and rich and strong we must be fluent in the gospel the third thing i'd like to point out or second thing i'd like to point out about this group of settlers is that the hand of god was with them in verse 21 any movement of the church that is born from man and our desires and, and our religion and our dogma and our wishes and our hopes and dreams, any movement began in the church based on man's wants is destined for failure. But if God is in it, watch out. God is going to do great things and he will always bring results, which we see in the third point. The third point is the great response that we see in verse 21 where lots and lots of people are coming to know the Lord. Lots of people are entering into the kingdom. You know, when you enter into the work of God, when you're a pioneer or a settler, um, you don't always get the privilege of seeing the fruit of the work that you've done. In fact, it's pretty uncommon. Uh, maybe it's not. You don't always get to see the fruit of the work that you've done. But these guys, the men from Cyprus and Cyrene, they went in and they did what they were called to do and they, they were able to experience it. What an amazing privilege. What a joy. And I... This is not in my notes. This is just for fun. If you're not engaging in the call that God has given to you, you won't see any fruit. But if you are and God is in it, you might have an amazing joy, joy and privilege of seeing fruit. It's a beautiful thing. Uh, the fourth thing I'd like to point out is that the, the church in Jerusalem had heard about it in verse 22. And that doesn't sound like a big deal, but it kind of is. There, there's no denying what God is up to, and the word spread rapidly. When people in communities step out in obedience to what God calls them into, and they, they preach the gospel, and God's hand is in it, and they live the gospel, there's often a ripple effect that goes far beyond what we can imagine or understand. And God is calling some of you, or has called some of you, or will call some of you, 
to be this kind of early responder, to be this settler. He's begun a new work, and you want to go in support of that work. And it could be, I didn't say this in first service, but I should have, it could be that that pioneering work, that new work is right here. It could be in your home, in your workplace, in your school. It could be in Indonesia, Tibet, next door. God does new things. Will you step in? Okay, good. So God is calling some of you, and you've got to be prepared. We'll talk about the preparation in a minute. The fourth movement, uh, the fourth role of uh, movements of God that's outlined in Acts chapter 11 is the builders. Read with me in Acts chapter 11, verses 22 through 26. Verse 22, then the report about them was heard by the church that was at Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to travel as far as Antioch. And when he arrived and saw the grace of God, Barnabas is sort of like one of those early church leaders, real cool dude. He was known as the encourager. He was awesome. And he went, and he saw what God was up to in Antioch, and he encouraged them to remain true to the Lord with a firm um, resolve of the heart, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and large numbers of people were added to the Lord. And then he went to Tarsus to search for Saul, or Paul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught large numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. I think this is really cool. So, so you had the pioneers, the trailblazers, and Peter. You had the settlers and the guys from Cyprus and Cyrene. And now you have the builders. And, and they go in, and uh, they do the the heavy lifting, the hard day-to-day struggle of building the church. So here's Barnabas. He's in Jerusalem. He hears about what's taking place up there in Antioch, and uh, they send him, and he goes, and he sees this amazing new thing that God is up to. And so he, the light bulbs sort of start clicking in his brain. He goes, I know a guy who needs to be a part of this. I know a guy who needs to see what's taking place here. And he goes, he travels all the way to Tarsus, and he finds Paul, and he brings him back, and he says, Paul, you've got to be a part of this. And he, he sees this opportunity to train Paul up in leadership in the church. And so they spend an entire year meeting with the church on a daily basis, teaching and preaching and discipling. And the church grows as a result. They build the kingdom there. And this is a beautiful thing. And, and, and Antioch ends up becoming a very important hub of Christian activity because of the obedience of these few men. The term Christians was first used here. Acts chapter 13 tells us that the first missionaries are sent from here. The, when the church in Jerusalem was trying to figure out um, how to interact with, with Gentile believers, the, they put together this official statement and it was, it was results in part from the work here in Antioch. And you see this in Acts chapter 15 and Galatians chapter two. It's a really important work that God wants to do through this early church, through these men who are obedient. And then from the third century, to about the 8th century, we see all kinds of early church fathers coming out of this region, coming out of this church, wrestling with, grappling with the scriptures, trying to understand who God is and what the church should be all about, and they develop all these systems of theology and thinking and traditions, many of which are really, really good, and that we live in and breathe in every day, and we don't even realize it. If these men had not been obedient to the call to go and to follow and to build we would not have church as we understand it today. It's important that we listen carefully for the call of God and step into the role that he's called us into. And this role, this final role, the role of builder of the movement of God is the role that most of us here today are called into. Most of us are gonna be called into the role of building the kingdom. 
And it's a huge, important role. And I hope and pray that we step into this role. Some of you will be called to be pioneers, the point of the spear, to go someplace new, to do something new, to engage something new, and it's going to be frightening and exciting and, and exhilarating, and, and you'll face opposition, and you'll, you'll dive in. And in order to be a pioneer, you've got to be ready Spend time in God's word every day. Prepare yourself. Spend time in prayer every day. Spend time reading books from people that are smarter than you. I promise there's plenty of them out there. Spend, <laughs> it's true for me. Spend time with other people who are, are engaged in this process of, of, of building God's kingdom and, and deep discussion, ask difficult questions. Spend time in discipleship relationships where people are discipling you and you're discipling someone else. If you're not doing these things, if you're not engaging in these processes and you get called to be a pioneer, you're gonna be dead in the water. Prepare yourself. You might be next, whether you're 14 or 94, Get ready for it. God wants to do new things. He's very creative. You might be called to be a settler, to come in behind someone who's been a pioneer, who's been the point of the spear, and to build on what they've done and to, and to further expand what they've been doing and explode the work of God in a, in a particular area or place or, or ideology. And, and if you're called to be this settler, then you need to be prepared. You need to be spending time in God's word every day. You need to be praying every day. You need to be reading books from people who are smarter than you. Trust me, there's plenty of them. You need to be having good discussions with people who are engaged in this process of building the kingdom. You need to be in discipleship relationships where you're being discipled and you're discipling others. Let me tell you, church, if you're not doing these things and you're being called to be a settler and, and move into the work that God is doing, the new work that he's doing, you will be dead in the water. The war is powerful. You must be prepared. We have to be prepared. Or you might be called to be the builder of the kingdom. And guess what? You gotta be prepared. Spend time in God's word. Spend time praying daily. Spend time reading books from people that are smarter than you. Trust me, there's plenty of them. Spend time with people in discussions who are engaged in this work and building the kingdom and ask difficult questions. Spend time being discipled by someone and discipling others. If you're not doing this and you're called to build the kingdom, guess what? You're dead in the water. We've got to engage in this process. If you're not discipling someone and you're not being discipled by someone, find somebody today. Look around. This room is a mission field. It's filled with people who need to be discipled, who need to be discipling others, who need Jesus in a deep and powerful and meaningful way in their life, and they just want something more. And you can help them. Dig in, dive in. Who's responsible for your spiritual growth? Is it me? No, not me. I know you didn't mean that. It's you. You, in partnership with the Holy Spirit, are responsible for your own spiritual growth. All I can do is stand up here and yell really loud and plead with you to please. It's your responsibility. Now go and do the work of the church. Can I make it more clear? Do it. Do it, not out of some obligation or because you have to or because some goofy guy on the stage tells you to, but do it because God has done it in you and out of gratitude for what he's done for you and the grace that he shows you. Let me tell you what, you don't deserve the grace he's giving you. And that grace should be a power in each of us, in us and through us, into the community around us. Go, step in. We know the job. We just gotta execute. Do it. Ooh. 
We've got to be prepared because God wants to do something new. I promise you. I promise you. Will all of you stand? Stand up. I got to get a drink. God is always creating, always doing new things, and is always looking for new people in which to do new things. God is a starter of new things. He's starting new movements. Are you one? Listen carefully. Are you a person? Are you the kind of person that God can start a new movement in, a new thing in? Are you willing in receptive soil? Are you willing to die to yourself? You know, I often hear about great things that are going on here in the body of our church, things, like things that we all know about and we hear about regularly, like our prison ministry and our homeless ministry and our car repair and our partnership with Oasis Crisis Pregnancy Center. And I hear about these things and I witness these things and I'm really, really encouraged by what's taking place. But I also hear about things that aren't so obvious and that take place behind the scenes, like a person who's been meeting one-on-one with a colleague and they bring them in to meet with Charles and with me to ask really difficult, important questions because they've been modeled Christ-likeness and they just want to know more about it. And I hear about things like home Bible studies that are taking place from members of our church that are deeply relational where, where people of all walks of life are welcome and life changes genuine and commonplace. Or I hear about a group of people who just show up at someone's house who's overwhelmed by their fostering and just moves in and takes over that house care and the yard work and taking care of the kids for a day. Or I hear of a group that one Sunday a month just meets together and sits down and just talks about the church and what God wants the church to be and just prays together. And I hear these things, I'm so encouraged. I think we get this. We understand our job. We understand our role. We understand we are to be builders of the kingdom of God and we're moving, we're doing things. I'm so encouraged. But I also hear things that aren't so encouraging. I hear of people walking in and seeing a visitor sitting in their pew and looking sideways at them or even saying something about it. Hey, you're in my seat. That happens here. I hear of people who change where they sit on Sunday morning so they don't have to sit near someone in particular whom they don't really care for. I hear of people who have fallen off the radar and learning after weeks and weeks and weeks that no one has contacted them or even seemed to care. I hear of ministries that are understaffed week after week. I hear of backbiting and complaining behind the backs of people we say we love, and I think maybe we don't get it. Maybe we aren't ready after all. Maybe if God calls us to be builders of the kingdom, we're not ready to sacrifice, really. We might say we are, but I'm not willing to die myself in that area. And maybe we aren't ready. Only you really know if you're ready to step into the new thing that God is going to call you into. And this morning, as we finish with singing and praying, I'm going to invite you to engage with the Holy Spirit and to ask Him to reveal to you the, the, the things in your life that you need to repent of, the things in your life that you need to engage in, and I'm going to ask you to respond. And if you want to respond with me, I'm be so excited to talk with you about these things. 
And so I'll be standing down here in the front. I'll mute my microphone so nobody hears. And I want to talk with you, and I want to pray with you. And, and I'd be shocked if there weren't somebody in this room who had not yet become a member of God's kingdom, and they really want to know what in the heck I'm talking about with this thing. And they want to know what it means to be a follower of Jesus and to be his disciple. And the Holy Spirit's been prompting you and working in you, and you're ready to ask deep questions. I would love to talk with you and pray with you about those things. So take this opportunity. Take this time just to just unplug from everything else. Just listen. Listen for the Holy Spirit. And I don't, I almost never say this, but don't even sing. Let the singers do their thing. Let the musicians play. Just listen. Listen for God. Be in a spirit of prayer and move when he asks you to. Steve.